2: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org. And you can follow the S-L-S-A, on Twitter at Southern SouthernLaborSA. I hope you enjoy the following interview.
0: Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with John Weber, assistant professor of history at Old Dominion University. He is the author of From South Texas to the Nation, The Exploitation of Mexican Labor in the 20th Century, published by the University of North Carolina Press. John Weber, welcome to Working History.
1: Uh, well, thank you for having me.
0: Your book, From South Texas to the Nation, explores a part of the United States that in the early 20th century became one of the most lucrative farming regions in the country. And I'm hoping that you could start us off by explaining exactly where we're talking about. Um, In other words, what are the geographic boundaries of what you're calling South Texas?
1: Okay, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is at the very most basic level, right? The the very sort of southern tip of Texas, um, looking primarily at the area um, with sort of San Antonio at the north down to the border. Um, so while it's only a small part of Texas, it is actually a very, very large region. It's 250-plus um, miles from north to south, um, relatively wide. Um, just to give you a comparison, it's, about, it's a little bit larger than the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so while we're only dealing with one part of the state, it is relatively large. It's linked together and has been traditionally by trade networks. Um, by a you know con- you know always having a fairly large Mexican origin population and in a lot of ways there's a bunch of things that hold it together though it is a fairly um, large region that I'm looking at.
0: Okay, and then uh, you know in the in the same vein, can you give us a sense of what South Texas was like around the turn of the century before large scale agriculture took off there? Um, what was the economy like, and who was working and living there primarily, and what were they doing? <laughs>
1: Okay, um in a lot of ways, because you know it, it's sort of starting to change as we get into the late nineteenth century towards the turn of the century. Um Deep South Texas, um the sort of the southernmost tip of this region I'm looking at, uh, was largely ranching society. Um so it was fairly isolated. It was fairly small population. Um, demographically, it was predominantly Mexican and Mexican American. Um, That starts to change in parts of South Texas as you get back to about the 1870s and 1880s when the railroads come in, um, they start to get a sort of, you know, more of a link to the rest of the country. Um, That shifts trade networks. That leads to sort of higher capitalization, which leads to land consolidation, which means that, um, you know, the economic activities that are going on in some of those regions start to change. But for the most part, when we're looking at 1900, South Texas is still relatively isolated um, it is still economically not, rel- not terribly important on a national scale um, and it is still uh, kind of largely looked at as being fairly sort of far distant from the seats of power. It's relatively desolate um, and there's really not, as far as most people are concerned, um, beyond the rancheros that live there, uh, much kind of economic use for much of the territory.
0: Okay, and so what changed? What kicks off the agricultural boom that really shapes this region in
1: the twentieth century? Um, in a lot of ways, there's a bunch of things that all happen simultaneously in the early twentieth century. Uh, one of them, um, and the, the really the kind of the thing that kicks all of this off, is the entry of the railroads into deep South Texas. Um, the railroad reaches San Antonio in 1877, reaches parts of South Texas, Corpus Christi, Laredo, Eagle Pass in the 1880s. But it doesn't reach Brownsville, in the southern tip um, of Texas, until 1904. Um, and when that happens, really, it immediately kicks off. Um, you know, enormous amounts of capital start flooding in. Suddenly, a region that was too isolated um, and too desolate now has money for uh, the shift from far- from ranching to farming. Um, and all of that is also happening by accident at the exact same time that the Mexican Revolution is beginning. Um, A few years later in 1910, which by the middle of the 19-teens is sending massive migration waves into the United States. Um, People largely just fleeing the war. Um, And really, when you have those two things combined, you have all at once enormous flood of capital, which ends up triggering a migration from within the United States where large numbers of people coming primarily out of the Midwest and the Southeast – move into South Texas basically as the new hoped for kind of boom region for agriculture. Um, and they are then met by huge numbers of refugees leaving Mexico, who in a lot of ways become the labor force that really helps to completely shift the uh, economic basis of South Texas, but also really turn South Texas through their labor power into a much more important economic um, region than it had ever been in the past.
0: Okay, so let's um, let's delve into this a little bit more um, in terms of how this agricultural boom changes South Texas. So, you know, how did it change with the development of this farming society versus what you had talked about in terms
1: of um, I mean, in a lot of ways, some of this is is inevitably going to happen whenever you have you go from a ranching society to a farming society. The bases of each society is inevitably going to be different, right? Ranching societies tend to be. Um, they're ex- incredibly labor and land extensive. So you don't need many people. Um, you need an enormous amount of land um, to undertake ranching successfully. Farming is sort of the opposite, right? You need, um, you don't necessarily need an enormous amount of land, but you do need an enormous labor supply. So it's incredibly land and labor intensive. Um, so as you sort of shift from one to the other essentially everything else in the society shifts with it, right? The demographics obviously change as you have to have a much larger population to farm than you do to ranch. Um, The political structures in ranching societies are largely built on isolation. Um, The political structures that come as a result of the farming society are instead built on uh, largely, as it turns out, in South Texas, the economic needs of the farming elite that emerges relatively rapidly. So as a result, uh, by the time you get, um, you know, into the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties, you've had this incredibly rapid shift, where you go from having a, a society that is again largely sort of built on isolation, largely built on ranching and fairly small time um, agricultural pursuits, has suddenly become this major boom area. Um, and more and more, the farm elites that dominate the society are trying to make sure that the political structures sort of match what they want. And what they want is obviously the political structures to do what, you know, to to accomplish the sort of economic goals they want, um, but also to, in essence, guarantee what for them is the most important aspect of their society, which is the availability of a readily exploitable labor supply. Um, so, in a lot of ways, the the political structures, the the economic structures, become inevitably built in South Texas around the idea of temporary migrant labor. Um, but more importantly, around the idea that that migrant labor, you know, during the off season, they want it gone because they don't want to have the kind of reciprocal duties that come with something like tenant farming, sharecropping, um, the kind of methods by which um, southeastern agriculture is still working in the early twentieth century. Um, instead, they want that labor there for as long as they need it and then it want gone. Um, but in order to achieve that, they have to create a political um, and economic system built on temporary mobility but also temporary immobility. Um, so in a lot of ways, the society they create um, is largely built around this really kind of delicate balancing act in a sense of encouraging mobility – um, so that they don't have these sort of long-term um, reciprocal duties with their labor force, but also making sure that that mobility doesn't end up giving workers the power to, to move on for better job offers um, to dictate terms to farmers, right? In a lot of ways, it's constantly sort of built on this very delicate and in a sense kind of parasitic relationship.
0: So um, before we talk a little bit more about the um, about these workers, um, what are we talking about when we're talking about
1: um, you know
0: farming? What are, what are they growing? In Texas? Are we talking cotton? Are we talking what are, what are they growing?
1: Um, in, in depending on where in South Texas you're looking, it's different things. Cotton is certainly um, one of them. In in the lower valley, there's cotton growing. Um, in the Corpus Christi area. Um, there's an enormous amount of cotton. By 1930, um, Nueces County, which is where Corpus Christi is, is producing more cotton than any other county in the country. Uh, But you also, as you start getting further into it, in a lot of ways, the way in which Texas is evolving in the early 20th century looks fairly similar to the way California is. So you start with some of these major staple crops, but in a lot of ways, you also start to see um, agriculture moving more into kind of specialty crops. Um, Citrus becomes an enormous... Part of the, the lower Rio Grande Valley agricultural economy. Um, the winter garden region, which is um, kind of north and west of the lower valley, um, ends up specializing in things like onions, spinach, um, tomatoes. So you have a lot of, so, you know, the, sort of the staple crops and the sort of the mode of cotton, as well as much more sort of seasonal, um, you know, much more sort of perishable crops, um, vegetables, citrus, things like that.
0: So um, let's um, let's get back to you know to talk about um, the, the sort of economy and labor force as it's evolving and, and developing with this agricultural boom. So where were the landowners finding their workers? Number one, and who were mm-hmm. they? Are we still talking about migrants? Or are we talking about um, locals? What you know, what's the story there? Number one, and number two, then what kind of develops into the new norm of labor relations in South Texas?
1: Um, in a lot of ways, they were finding their laborers wherever they could some of them certainly are locals from south texas some of them are coming from mexico Um, in a lot of ways as far as the growers were concerned it didn't necessarily matter where they were coming from but a lot of ways um the kind of ethnic racial identity of the workers was important Um, they were you know very clear that mexican labor was who they were looking for whether they were mexican americans or mexican citizens in a lot of ways was sort of immaterial for the growers um, the point was the the idea for them was that Mexicans, um, as a distinct ethnic and racial group, were inherently less powerful, especially as they sort of really, uh, as part of the farm takeover of South Texas, really cement segregation. In South Texas, largely targeting Mexicans as the sort of center, central aspect of their society. Um, so in a lot of ways, what, for growers, it was – not entirely immaterial, but largely immaterial, which side of the U.S.-Mexico border they were from. Um, so there were many from the towns and cities of South Texas who were part of this migrant stream. There were many who were um, migrants from Mexico who would again kind of um, who were always an important part of this sort of migrant stream that really begins and ends in South Texas, starting in these years in the teens and twenties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, what what develops then into into the 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 normative labor relation.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, no, that, that, that was the second part of your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in a lot of ways, as I sort of said, the 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 goal um, of this farm societies it develops is to again create, ideally, a a, a constantly evolving, constantly moving labor force. Um, again, they, there was no idea of of trying to recreate. Um, the, the, the agricultural societies of the Southeast, this was looked at as a new, entirely modern, very different form of labor relations where um, essentially the mobile worker, the worker with no direct ties to the land where they lived or where they were working, excuse me, um, a worker that was, again, and as far as the employers were concerned, far more exploitable because they could simply be gotten rid of when their work was done. Um, that really becomes the norm, the goal, um, the, 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 the cornerstone, really, in a lot of ways of the South Texas agricultural boom that, that, you know, continues to grow through the teens and 20s.
0: So are we seeing the development of what we sort of think of now as migrant labor, where you have a labor force that sort of follows crops, um, you know, during seasons from one to another to another, but they're never really sort of in a particular place?
1: Oh, absolutely. This is in a lot of ways, and that's sort of you know one of the arguments in the larger book is that, um, in essence, the 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 migrant stream that begins and ends in Texas, and if you sort of look at um, the federal government during the twenties, thirties, forties, really through the nineteen sixties, continued to sort of put out these. Uh, maps that showed what the migrant stream nationally looked like. And if you sort of look at it, there's three usually distinct migrant streams, one that goes up and down the East Coast that's um, fairly thin, but is constantly moving up and down. Um, There's one that's sort of self-contained on the West Coast that largely goes within California with a little bit of it going into Oregon and Washington. And there's this sort of massive one that emerges out of South Texas and goes essentially everywhere else in the country. Um, And it, it really sort of begins here. Um, and in part, it's because the migrant workers themselves are 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 so are, are paid so poorly um, that they are really kind of continually forced to continue migrating. Right? You can't sort of make a living off of one or two harvest seasons. You have to continually move. So you know they start each year in the south and they continually move until by the end of the winter, uh, or to, by the beginning of the winter. Excuse me, they're they're in you know the upper Midwest. Um, and in some ways, that's, you know, kind of where I think the larger importance of this goes, right? If, if all of this just remains bottled up in South Texas, uh, it's important in the sense of regional history, but nationally, it has fairly limited um, impact. Um, the problem is that in a lot of ways, growers elsewhere looked at the enormous boom that South Texas was undergoing, and they realized that the key to this in a lot of ways was the almost impossibly low wages that they were paying. And so growers in the rest of the country more and more start trying to, on the one hand, replicate what South Texas growers are doing. And, you know, they there's certainly sort of mixed success with that. But more importantly, start tapping into that labor supply, right? So they start sending recruiters down to the U.S.-Mexico border. They start sending recruiters down to the towns and cities of South Texas um, to draw that labor out. Because they realize that, you know, if we can draw – workers out of South Texas up to, say, the the, the sugar beet fields of Michigan, um, we can pay much lower than we would pay local workers because the, the wage levels in South Texas are so low that we can drive our own prices down and still compete favorably with what it is that workers are being paid um, in the U.S.-Mexico border region.
0: Okay. And so can you talk a little bit more – you sort of hinted at this, but – Um, talk a little bit more about um, sort of how the labor relations in this region comes to impact and be impacted by broader immigration debates that are going on and, um, you know, broader um, immigration legislation that's being discussed and debated in the past um, through, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s.
1: Okay, Um, absolutely. In a lot of ways, I think this is one of the parts of the book that when I was first starting this project, I didn't really think was going to be that terribly important and the more I got into it, the more I realized that in a lot of ways, this is one of the central aspects of it. Um, Immigration as sort of nativist pressure starts to really take hold in the teens and 20s um, and you have more and more restrictive legislation that requires things like um, literacy tests, head taxes, those sorts of things. Um, what it does is, you know, again, and a bunch of historians have written about this. It, it it obviously is is looking to sort of slow down mass migration, um, at least the levels of mass migration that the U.S. had seen in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Though in a lot of ways, Mexico, in theory, is left out of that. Right when the when the quota laws start coming in in the 1920s that are limiting um, Eastern and Southern European migrants, that are completely excluding Asian migrants, uh, Mexico and the Western Hemisphere are completely excluded. Um, but as that's happening, what it does is that in a lot of ways – and you know, May and I and a bunch of other historians have written about this. So I do kind of feel like I'm just sort of poaching their ideas here. <laughs> I don't want to make any claims to being the only one to make this argument. Um, it, that in essence, what that sort of law enforc- – what, what the, the changes in the laws and what the, the kind of law enforcement response ends up doing is it means that suddenly now Mexicans – um, become more and more the, the targets of law enforcement efforts to deal with immigration restriction. That numerically they are not stopped from coming in, but head taxes, literacy tests, right? All of the sorts of things that are, are meant to sort of slow down immigration starting in 1917 end up having a very clear impact on, on, on sort of Mexican immigrants. And what that means in a lot of ways for employers, and this is you know an accidental discovery by employers, but one that really ends up sort of helping to kind of, uh, again, sort of cement this system even more fully, is that um, with their labor force now, especially their Mexican citizen labor force, um, now much less able to claim rights within the United States because of either the reality of uh, being undocumented migrants or at least the – Um, the specter of them being undocumented migrants really allows growers to much more fully exploit them and to really ignore any notions of human rights, citizenship rights. Um, And in a lot of ways, what that ends up doing as Mexicans and as as sort of ethnic Mexicans become more clearly targeted as once we get into the 1920s and certainly the 1930s, as the kind of prototypical undocumented migrants. In essence, what that means is that increasingly growers are able to sort of cast this um, broad idea, and you know, much of, of the society agrees with them, um, that their labor supply, whether Mexican citizen or Mexican-American, are all inevitably racially Mexican, that it's not really a sort of a, a national. Designation that increasingly becomes a sort of racial racial designation, and one that almost invariably means that those who are Mexican, regardless of their citizenship, um, have very little ability to actually claim rights, very little ability to um, to go to law enforcement and and complain about um, being dealt with harshly or illegally by employers. Um, so, in a lot of ways, what the sort of increasing um, notions of border control, the, the, the kind of the growth in nativist contentions trying to um, shut out really all immigrants, but really especially looking at uh, the way that Mexicans are dealt with, especially in the debates in the 1920s, um, is that in a lot of ways, even though it in theory threatens growers' ability to get more workers, which is really their kind of starting point in looking at all of these debates, um, it actually ends up helping them because what it does is it actually ends up lessening the ability of many of those workers to actually claim any rights.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: So they can't challenge.
1: Uh, absolutely, from
0: you know working conditions to wages to you know,
1: absolutely, labor, absolutely. Labor.
0: So can you talk a little bit about, or maybe a lot about, um, the the RACERO program and you know what it was, its importance, mm-hmm. this model of labor relations in, in South Texas.
1: Um, this is sort of where the book ends, and it's sort of my big culmination. Um, the Rosero program was. Um, When it was originally passed, it was passed in 1942 as an emergency wartime program between the United States and Mexico by national agreement to send uh, Mexican agricultural workers into the United States to fill what growers claimed were job shortages. Um, There were also – there was also a a, a sort of smaller – um, railroad Bracero program, but it was much smaller, and it's. It, I'm not going to talk about it at all. <laughs> um, and really, I don't even think it. I had, I had nothing to do with Texas either, so um, so I'm going to ignore that part of it. In theory, what this was meant to do is deal with an immediate shortage of agricultural labor, and the, and the fear for growers and for a lot of people was that. Uh, With the Great Depression now done, with huge numbers of people going into the military, with larger numbers also going into industrial employment, um, there was now being opened up to groups that had previously been denied employment in places like Detroit. um, That agriculture was inevitably going to suffer. um, That the workers simply wouldn't be there. Um, So growers were successfully able to get the, the Roosevelt administration to Create this agreement with Mexico to bring them in, Um, and in theory, there were a bunch of protections that were written into this program. Um, Mexican workers wouldn't be, or braceros wouldn't be brought in to replace American workers. They wouldn't reduce um, wage levels in regions, in places where they were brought in, um, in in areas where there was chronic discrimination against Mexicans, or employers who were chronically discriminatory towards Mexicans wouldn't be allowed. um, What came to be known as the blacklist. Which, by the way, ended up meaning that the entire state of Texas was blacklisted for the first five years of this program. But in essence, right, the idea was this is an emergency program. It's very sort of short term. It ends up, in fact, lasting until 1964, which you know a few years after World War II is over. Um, And in in essence, what the Bracero program was, my argument is that in essence, this was an effort to take. The labor relations that had long been the case, that had long been in effect in South Texas, and spread them to the rest of the country. Um, that this was now giving growers everywhere a, a shot at getting large numbers of workers who had no ability to claim citizenship rights. Right, they were by definition not American citizens, so they, you know, that was essentially closed off to them. Um, that were temporary that could not complain, right? If a worker, if a guest worker complains, as we've seen in study after study, inevitably they are shipped off. Um, it, it basically takes all of these sort of Im- immobilization, um, lack of rights, all of the sorts of things that had really kind of characterized South Texas labor relations since the beginning of the 20th century and essentially blows them up nationally. Um, and then the larger importance of that is that in essence what the Bracero program both symbolically and in actuality does, is on the one hand, it sort of cements the idea that agriculture stands completely outside of the normal workings of the economy. Um, That notions of of, uh, labor supply, that notions of kind of um, wage structures don't really apply. That that agriculture is permanently now essentially looked at as a low-wage field In which the workers inherently have no rights or have very limited rights, and the bracero program, in a lot of ways, is is just the federal government kind of giving in to that fact. Um, It also, in a sense, is is making a larger argument, or you know, I think is making a larger sort of uh, important kind of symbolic point about um, immigration along the U.S.-Mexico border. That, in essence, what this is saying is that immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border likewise stands completely outside of the normal workings of of the way that immigration is dealt with in the United States. Um, that U.S.-Mexico, yeah, immigration from Mexico to the United States basically is looked at almost entirely as a labor issue. It's not an issue of immigration, it's not an issue of rights, citizenship, all of those normal things that we talk about when we talk about sort of U.S. immigration history. With Mexico, all of those things are secondary if they're even in the discussion. Um, that this has almost always been a case where, um, and the Bracero program really only cements this idea more solidly, um, that Mexico is really only there as a sort of labor supplier, that Mexican citizens are there as workers, um, in the case of the Bracero program, temporary workers. Um, and that in essence, that's where this entire thing begins and ends. You
0: know, was there any room for negotiation for agency for collective action? What, um, what were individual workers doing
2: themselves,
1: collectively through um, mm-hmm. this? There absolutely was. You're, you know, in a lot of ways, sort of this is not a <laughs> terribly cheery story. Right. Yeah. It's it's not one where sort of the agency, the negotiation, really sort of jumps out. But there absolutely was. In a lot of ways, I mean, this is sort of one of the uh, the issues of sort of migration itself, of sort of large scale migration, is that for the migrant workers themselves, migration was both. Uh, Part of the re- or, you know it was one of the methods by which they're exploited, but it was also their ability to at least wield some authority right Again, when they're immobilized obviously you know they they're, they're, much of that agency is 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 taken away. but you know by simply leaving right by trying to negotiate, by trying to sort of move on to better paying jobs, um, in a sense that was or not in a sense right that was, um, a, one of the ways in which migrant workers tried to deal with this system, right? Try, constantly looking um, to find better paying jobs, um, constantly looking um, to find better conditions. Um, so in a sense, right, the migrant stream is itself um, this very sort of strange combination of both hyper-exploitation and kind of constant efforts by the workers themselves to, um, to, to find agency, right? To, to sort of uh, to find a grounds to negotiate. Um, and you know, in the end, the, the growers were never able to make a, a, a complete closed system here, right? They're they, they very successful at doing much of what they want to do, but the workers are still able to find cracks in that system. They're able to find room for negotiation. Um, there's also, and in a lot of ways, this is, um, I think, you know, a, a, going on to your question, one of the biggest obvious differences between agriculture and industrial employment um, is that unions are certainly not absent in agriculture, but they tend to be much rarer. Um, and you know, for a number of different reasons, one of them that I go into a little bit: the simple fact that um, there was no legal basis, or there's there's no none of the legal protections that industrial unions are provided are provided to agricultural workers. So there are efforts to unionize. Um, both in the towns and cities of South Texas, especially during the 1930s, there is a kind of massive effort, especially in San Antonio, to sort of unionize a number of the industries that are within the city of San Antonio seasonal and are largely built on um, migrant farm workers who are back in San Antonio um, in the off-season. Right? When they're not migrating, they come back and work um, in cigar factories and pecan shelling factories and things like that. So in a sense, those were kind of a, you know the in you know what I've sort of found in in South, South Texas, um, those were sort of the ways in which the workers themselves tried to deal with the system that was being built largely on their backs. Um, you know, on occasion by trying to unionize, though in a lot of ways, you know, as the history of agricultural labor unfortunately tells us, they are almost never successful, um, or very rarely, or so. Um, and by simply continuing to migrate, right? Again, the, the goal was never um, for anyone that, that the migrant stream becomes the self-fulfilling thing, right? The, the goal is always to, to find industrial employment at the end of this, to, to find higher-paying jobs, right? To find something more stable. Um, the fact that they didn't get there doesn't mean that they were just sort of complicit in their own – or that many of them don't get there doesn't mean they're complicit in their own exploitation, Um, But it does, in some ways, just show how difficult, how how sort of rigid the system had become.
0: Um, You know, how does your story inform all of these discussions that are
1: going on right now? I I think I'm going to deal with the second part of your question first, and then I'll get back to the one about the the long term importance (laughs) of labor relations. Um, Because in a lot of ways, this is you know you know as somebody who sort of works on this stuff, as somebody who teaches on this stuff, the the immigration, um, the the politics of immigration are often things I'm asked about. Um, and the the unfortunate answer I often give is I don't really have much to say because the way in which we talk about immigration, the way in which at least the politics of immigration typically takes place in this country, at least now, is so aggressively dumb um, that I I don't even really know how to begin. Right? How do you deal with with Donald Trump? Right? How do you how do you try and sort of correct what he's saying? <laughs> so that's not really giving you an answer. But in some ways, it's it's I, I think one of the things that um, you, you know, if, if scholars are going to get in and actually have anything to say about this debate, we almost have to completely change the way in which the debate itself is taking place um, because it has, say, say you
0: were, a, you know, you're, you're a policy advisor to whoever. Mm-hmm. what, you know, what would you be saying to
1: them? Um, I mean, I think part of to it is sort of that
0: change, you know to change the conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, that you know the uh, I mean, in some of it, the part of they, part of the problem, I think is that nativism is one of those very rare things that is remarkably transhistorical, right? The the basis, the arguments made by nativists almost never changes. Mm-hmm. Um, the group they're targeting, the vocabulary they use is slightly less repugnant. Maybe now, though. Yeah, again with the, what's been happening the last few months. I can't even say that. Um, but in some ways, I think, you know, the, the point should be um, that immigration needs to be looked at as, as both a, a sort of inevitable aspect of our place within the larger world, um, at the same time that it also needs to be looked at as as an issue where human rights should be one of the clearest goals. And I think one of the, 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 the clearest sort of... Um, arguments here, and one that I've, I've sort of talked about a little bit in the past and written sort of a blog post for UNC about, was the issue of guest workers. Um, because this has sort of weirdly become one of those things that so-called moderate, um, serious voices in this immigration debate start pointing at guest worker programs as the solution, right? That, that it, it, it makes otherwise very sort of messy issues of migration much cleaner by just sort of bringing people in having them work for a little while, so we deal with the economic aspects of, of migration. Um, but then once they're done, we get rid of them and all of the messy issues of citizenship and all that sort of stuff is, is gone. There's a number of large problems with those arguments, right? Some of them just sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of grotesque violation in many cases of very basic notions of human rights, but also because they're based on the idea that guest worker programs solve problems of undocumented migration. And in fact, the the history should tell us the exact opposite. Um, the guest worker programs, in fact, tend to um, create um, pressures towards undocumented migration. That's one of the clearest takeaways I, I talk about in the book of the actual results of the guest of the excuse me the best the bracero program um, that the bracero program's lar- you know one of its largest um, results beyond constantly slashing wage rates and things like that was that it actually accelerated rates of undocumented migration. So in a lot of ways, I I think that right—it's sort of little things like that that maybe we can at least sort of start changing the tone of this debate, even if we can't really. Right, Donald Trump's a lost cause. He's going to say whatever the hell he's going to say, and that's you know what his candidacy is based on. This point is stoking that kind of stuff, but I do think there are ways in which we can at least get beyond what. Some people are trying to say a reasonable ideas, and instead, right, like guest worker programs, um, and instead, sort of uh, try to sort of focus notions of immigration on, frankly, where they have been at times in the past. Right, that, that the goal of immigration should be on dealing with issues of human rights, um, on, on on dealing with um, certainly sort of economic pressures as well, which is you know again long been kind of one of the underlying realities of U.S. immigration history is that, that, that e- economics is driving an enormous amount of it um, and not just sort of turn it into this sort of who can be more sort of red-faced nativist, um, which we're having a wonderful um, <laughs> example of, of, of how that's essentially the only thing we're talking about any longer. Um, but hopefully, eventually, we'll sort of move beyond that. I'm not going to hold my breath, but that's always the hope. Um, getting back to your – the first question, um, long-term importance of the South Texas model of labor relations. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I – I, my, you know, sort of argument has basically long been that uh, the the way in which modern immigration – modern labor relations, excuse me, is now sort of dealt with where um, – and, you know, again, this is an argument that Cindy Hamovich has made in other places um, where the ideal worker for many – industries, both in this country and elsewhere, um, has now become the temporary worker, um, the worker that can be gotten rid of as done it as soon as they're done, um, with the global explosion of guest worker programs, with the worker who has no inherent rights. Um, and in a lot of ways I'm sort of arguing, and you know, I'm not saying that, you know, uh thys- or the 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 chicken uh factories that are you know, now one of the places where we have some of the more grotesque examples of, of, of workers' rights violations. I'm not saying that they look at South Texas and say, aha, let's do what they did in the early 20th century. But in a lot of ways, I, I think the, the form of labor relations that emerges from South Texas, right, this sort of effort to drive wages down to, to find a more easily exploitable labor force has a very clear impact going forward, um, that the effort that the, the sort of the race for the bottom... Um, amongst that, – that South Texas growers really kind of um, jump full force into in the early 20th century does have this very clear long-term impact, right? That, that there's a very clear strand of low-wage employment practices that, you know, that I'm, I'm sort of saying have a direct line back to what it is that, that happened in South Texas in the early 20th century.
0: Well, John Weber, you've uh, given us a lot to think about, um, and you know your your book is is a great primer for anybody who's interested in um, you know sort of thinking historically about about these broader debates that are certainly, as, as you noted, um, still very um, you know very salient um, you know day to day here. So, um, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Working History.
1: Oh, absolutely, thank you.
0: Thanks again to John Weber, assistant professor of history at Old Dominion University, and author. Of From South Texas to the Nation, The Exploitation of Mexican Labor in the 20th Century, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.